Thank you, Deborah. So glad to see each one of you here this morning. It's a great crowd on the spring break weekend. We're glad that you're with us this evening and uh, this morning. And we have, uh, of course, a group that left this morning at 9 o'clock. About 40 of our people left on a mission trip to uh, Louisiana. They've already had their first mechanical difficulty. Something happened to the trailer, and they've uh, got a flat on the trailer. So you be in prayer for them, if you would, as they work that out this morning. Take your Bible, turn with me this morning in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, we're going to begin reading in verse number 9 in just a few moments. Almost all of our prayers begin by us rushing into the presence of God with a series of requests in which we pour out to God our problems, our needs, our irritations. And unfortunately, this only reinforces the focus of our intention on what is troubling us and our inability to remedy it. It could be at least a part of the problem of why sometimes we are more depressed and frustrated after we pray than before. Alan Redpath sums up how many feel even after they've prayed. He says, when we have finished our prayer, praying, we can scarcely bring ourselves to believe that our feeble words can have been heard or that they can make any difference in the things concerning which we have been praying. We've said our prayers, but we have not prayed. The disciples themselves must have felt something like that. For one day, after they had already been with the Lord sometime as his disciples came to Jesus. And according to Luke's account in Luke chapter 11 and verse 1, they ask of Jesus this very simple request. Lord, teach us to pray. It was in response to that request to teach them how to pray that the Lord gave what is most commonly referred to as the Lord's Prayer. Matthew tells us in verse number 9 that Jesus said, In this manner, therefore pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now there are some who argue that this should not be called the Lord's Prayer, but rather that the prayer that's found in John chapter 17 more rightfully deserves that title. Yet because this great prayer has been called the Lord's Prayer for almost 2,000 years, it's highly unlikely to think that we're going to change that perception now. But whether you call this the Lord's Prayer, or the Disciples' Prayer, or what I prefer, the Model Prayer, doesn't matter much as long as we recognize that it was given by Jesus as a model for all true prayer. Now, the Lord's Prayer was given to us as a pattern for prayer that is acceptable to God. The Lord's Prayer was given to show the disciples how to pray. 
That is how they should go about praying, not just the words that they should use. And Jesus begins by saying, in this manner, or pray like this, or when you pray, say this. It is particularly ironic, I think, that the Lord's Prayer is often mindlessly repeated given that Jesus warned in verses 7 and 8 against the prayer, the dangers of meaningless repetition. Two truths seem apparent to me. First, he does not want us to repeat any prayer again and again and again and again. And there's obviously a, a difference between much talking and much praying. And secondly, he wants us to know that the Lord does not hear us based on the length of our prayers. Some of the world's most effective prayers have been very short. Now, the Lord's Prayer is made up of six or seven petitions or requests, depending on how you divide the prayer. The first three petitions are called your petitions because they begin with the word your, and they center on God's glory. Your name be hallowed. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. The final set of four petitions is called the us petitions, and they are focused on our personal needs. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Lead us not into temptation. And deliver us from the evil one. Now in this message and the message next week, I want to examine the Lord's Prayer as a pattern for prayer as we look at each of those seven petitions one at a time. In this message, we're going to examine the first three petitions that are concerned with God's glory. And in the next message, we'll concentrate on the four final petitions addressed to the believer's needs. Now, you should sigh with a sigh of relief because I did have this all as one message, but after I got through, it was about an hour and a half, and I didn't think you could stand it. So I cut it in half just for you this morning. But before we examine the petition, we, we need to note that the Lord's Prayer begins with the phrase, Our Father who art in heaven. That is not that we should just merely say those words, but that we are to believe that God is our Father and we are to relate to him as a father. One really can't say the Lord's Prayer without first establishing a relationship through faith in Christ with God as our Father. We have to be born into the family of God. Now, this part alone cuts through that the false doctrine of the universal fatherhood of God, that God is the Father of all men. God is the creator of all men. He is uniquely the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and He becomes the Father of those, all those who believe on Christ. The Apostle John put it very simply when he wrote in John chapter 1 and verse 12, But as many as receive Him, that is, as many as receive Christ, to them He gave the right to become the children of God. To those who believe in his name. So all 
true prayer begins with an awareness of the ability to claim a relationship with God. Jesus is stating the importance of starting our prayers with the awareness that God is our Father. And while Jesus' teaching here is, is pretty dramatic, God is referred to only 14 times in the Old Testament as Father. And then in every one of those 14 times, it was in a corporate sense, as he is the Father of Israel, never in a personal way. No one in the entire history of Israel had ever prayed as Jesus prayed. Even more radical was the word that Jesus used for father. It was a very common Aramaic word which a child would address his own father, the word Abba. Of course, everyone used that word but no one under any circumstances ever used that word in connection with God. Abba meant something like daddy, but with a more reverent touch than we would use it today. It meant something like dearest father. The fact that God is our dearest father is to be the foundational awareness of prayer. Ramped up in the expression, our Father, is a new dimension in intimate communication with God. The same intimacy that exists between a child and their father is to exist between them and their God. The beginning of effective prayer is the recognition that God possesses a father's heart, a father's love, a father's strength, and a father's concern for the well-being of his children. Now, the problem among some Christians today is the opposite of the ancient Jews. They are flippantly sentimental about their relationship with God. And I think Jesus addressed both errors when he addressed his prayer to our Father in heaven. Abba, our dearest father, he also added to you by saying, in heaven. And in so doing, he reminds us that our father in heaven is sovereign of the universe. We may address God as dearest father, but we should do it with the deepest sense of wonder and awe. Everett Fulham, a missionary to a remote tribe in Nigeria relates how one of the local natives saw the awesomeness of this new experience with God. He said, behind this universe stands one God, not a great number of warring spirits as we have always believed, but one God, and that God loves me. That's pretty awesome when you think about it. I believe that we should all share in the wonder that that man felt that the God of the universe loves us. It is through this sense of being loved that we can come to truly understand forgiveness and wholeness that comes from being loved and forgiven. The writer of the old hymn expresses it for us. He says, immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light inaccessible, hid from our eyes, most blessed, most glorious, 
the Ancient of Days, Almighty, Victorious, Thy great name we praise. Having the foundational awareness of God as our Father, we're now ready to move on to the first petition, which is, Hallowed be your name. What does it mean to hallow his name? The word hallow is a fairly common Greek word. It is a word that we translate holy. Holy. Hallow means to set apart as holy, to consider holy, to treat as holy. Maybe the best modern word would be the word reverence. So when you pray, hallowed be your name, you're saying, Father, may your name be reverenced on earth as it already is in heaven. May your name be given the reverence that is due your character and nature as our Heavenly Father. It really is climbing to a new level of respect for God and reverence for His person. You're ascending to the very heart of God to recognize who He is and what He has done for us. When you begin your prayers, hallowed be your name, you're not rushing into the presence of God demanding something. You're coming into the presence of God recognizing who He is. So when Jesus taught us to pray, hallowed be your name, he's telling us to make the presence of God real in our heart. When you pray, hallowed be your name, you're placing God on the throne of your heart. It's about putting God on the throne of our lives as he sits upon the throne in heaven. His name is hallowed in our lives when we are supremely concerned that every detail of our life should bring him glory. Whatever task you or I may undertake, our first thought ought to be, is this for his glory? This thought should be in our thoughts when we choose the books we will read or the movies we will watch. The phrase applies to the friends we will make and the company we will keep. It should be the chief concern in all the habits that we form and all the ambitions that we cherish. This should be the supreme object in every pleasure we seek. This will be our attitude concerning every sorrow and trial we face. It is a solemn thought to realize that failure on our part to hallow the name of the Lord has disastrous consequences in causing the name of the Lord to be blasphemed by the world. The Apostle Paul once wrote to the church in Rome, and he said, The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, talking about the Jews. When we pray and we say, Hallowed be your name, we're saying, Father, I realize that your reputation is at stake in me today. May I live in such a way as to be a credit to you. May others see your character through my behavior and honor your name because of what they see of you in me. Praying not only to hallow his name, but secondly, your kingdom come. For Jesus, the kingdom of God, was the priority. His message was primarily about the kingdom. 
Over a hundred times in the Gospels, Jesus refers to the kingdom. It is not surprising then that Jesus taught his followers that the first order of business in praying after entering into God's presence through praise was to affirm the priority of God's rule being established in our lives. So what did Jesus mean when he taught us to pray for the kingdom to come? There are at least two present aspects to that request. The first present aspect we need to consider about our prayer for God's kingdom to come is that we are asking God to rule in our own lives. Of course, we recognize the kingdom is not in its fullness at this time, but it will come into its fullness upon the ultimate return of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we can experience an increasing manifestation of the kingdom in our lives today. Jesus said in Luke chapter 17 and verse 21, For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. The Apostle Paul tells us, as he wrote to the Colossians in Colossians 1.13, that we have been delivered into the kingdom. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of his Son, the Son of his love. Now it is our task as Christians to manifest the kingdom of God here on this planet Earth. If we truly desire God's rule over all men and women at a future time, then it follows that we will desire that he will work his will out in our lives now. When we pray, thy kingdom come, we are acknowledging God's right to rule all people, including us. We dare not pray for his rule over others unless we honestly desire his rule over us. There is absolutely no reason whatever to pray, Thy kingdom come, unless we fully intend to cooperate with the establishment of his rule in our own lives. And obviously the more fully we submit to God's reign in our own lives, the more effectively God will be able to use us in manifesting his kingdom on this earth. The second present aspect of praying for God's kingdom is that we are asking for the spread of the gospel to those who do not know Christ. You're praying for the kingdom of Christ to be expanded into the lives of people who are at present outside the kingdom. But there is also a future aspect when we pray this prayer. There is yet to be a kingdom in which the rule and reign of Christ will be totally recognized. So when we pray, your kingdom come, we are in reality asking for the second coming of Jesus Christ. We're asking for him to come and establish his kingdom on this earth. We're looking forward to the climax of history when God will bring forth his son and establish a kingdom on this earth as it already exists in heaven. When that prayer thy kingdom come as answered he will take possession of that kingdom and as John tells us in the book of Revelation the kingdoms plural of this world will become the kingdom singular 
of our Lord and Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Praying not only for your kingdom to come, but third and finally, that your will might be done. This is the third and final your petition, which centers on God. It is unfortunately true that uncounted millions have repeated the words, your will be done, without the faintest notion of what God's will is. Perhaps even more alarming is that even more people have repeated those words without any intention whatever of seeing to it that God's will is done. You need to understand that you are not asking God to change his will or to bless your will. Indeed, he is asking that you are asking him to help you find and do his will in your life. Now think about what we're saying. We're even implying that our wills may be overturned if necessary to accomplish his will in our lives. To pray your will be done means we understand that prayer is not about getting God on my page, but rather about getting me onto his page. It's an acknowledgement of wanting to be a part of his plan and to live within his agenda. To pray your will be done is a commitment to knowing God's will as it is revealed in his word. But it's not enough just to know the will of God. One must then apply it. Your will be done is in reality a prayer of submission. According to Romans 12 too, it is our privilege to submit to that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The truth is that the cause of most of the unrest and frustration and unhappiness and sense of powerless in the lives of Christians can be traced back to us trying to follow our own self-will. Behind much of our failure is the desire to have my own way, not his. The second part of that petition is that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Think for a moment, how is the will of God done in heaven? If the veil were pulled back for a moment this morning so that we could get a glimpse of how his will is done in heaven, what do you think we would see? We would see the will of God being done by every creature without exception, none out of harmony. The will of God is done in heaven instantly constantly and without failure. As I try to close up this morning, I want you to think about prayer and about your prayer life. One of the most important things to learn in life for a Christian is how to pray. And when the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. By way of an answer, he gave them the Lord's Prayer as a pattern. 
Now, maybe I'm just a little skeptical, but I have to wonder if the disciples were not a little bit disappointed with the Lord's answer to their question. Now, remember, they've seen the Lord for some two years now. They have witnessed him agonize in prayer. They've seen him struggle in prayer. Is it possible that they expected more than a 17-second lesson on prayer? But if you think about it, what Jesus said was, when you pray, pray in this manner. Perhaps the most profound thing this prayer teaches us about prayer is you learn to pray by praying. It's not found in a book on prayer. It's not in a seminar on how to conquer wandering thoughts. If you want to learn how to pray, then all you have to do is pray. It was never his intention that we should just recite this prayer from memory, but rather that we should use it as a pattern, an example of how to pray. And yet, perhaps no prayer has been repeated more with little or no understanding. To glibly repeat back this prayer accomplishes nothing. However, to really pray through the principles that we learn in this prayer can be immeasurable. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we are grateful that we can come before you, the God of this universe, and know that you love us. You loved us supremely, so much so that you sent your only son to pay the penalty for our sins. That still is staggering to us. You love us so much that you are unwilling for us to go about this life trying to carry out our lives by our own will. Yet you have created us and given us a purpose in life. Father, I pray that we might take the principles that we learn as Jesus imparted this great prayer to his disciples and begin to apply those principles in our prayer life that we might recognize who you are, not just simply rush into your presence with a list, give you our list and depart. But help us to really learn from this prayer how to go about having an effective prayer life. Father, there may be one here this morning that doesn't know you as a personal Savior, and it certainly is not possible for them to understand the Lord's Prayer unless they first begin by establishing a relationship with you as their Father. If there's one here this morning that realizes that they're not saved, that they really truly do not have a relationship with you, I pray that right here, that they would just turn to you and recognize that they're a sinner, that they cannot save themselves, but that Jesus has already done everything that's necessary. He's paid for our sin on the cross of Calvary and help them to accept that payment today for all of us who are saved. I pray that you'd help us to be more stringent and more zealous in our prayer life. 
Help us, Lord, for we are weak. We need your presence, and we need this, a sense of you being with us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.